Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, and especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government, but they control our culture. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the Power, to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Pray on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. It's about time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our planet with envy.
his eyes. Each of us, when separated, is always looking for our other half. And the desire and the pursuit of the whole is called love. Heart perception will change everything. Welcome to the Secret Teachings Radio Broadcast. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Thank you so much for joining us this Friday into Saturday, March 4th into March 5th, 2022. I'd like to welcome you to the show whenever and wherever you are listening around the world. If you're listening in the Secret Teachings Archive and the many radio and podcast players, thank you for joining us. Please leave us a review on those players if you have a moment to give us a couple of stars and to write us a little review of what you think of the show it'll encourage others hopefully to listen to this broadcast and if you're listening in the advertisement free archive on the website at thesecretteachings.info really appreciate you signing up and supporting the show for those of you who haven't signed up yet you'll get access to the ad free show a private RSS feed, all of my digital books, and access to the Montage Archive. Plus, yearly subscribers still get a physical copy of one of my books. All of those books are also sold separately in physical, softcover, autographed copies on the website and in digital form. www.thesecretteachings.info The books are Food Philosophy, The Technological Elixir, and Occult Arcana, taking you from transhumanism and artificial intelligence to UFOs to voodoo to witchcraft to symbols and theology to philosophy to anything and everything within and without those subjects packed into thousands of pages that I've written, edited, and published One way to get more information out to you as listeners and to support this show. Other ways to support the show, Pro One Water Filters on our website and Patreon, where we have behind-the-scenes content. You can also email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings. And check us out, follow us, like us on Gab and Gitter, the other two social media platforms that we are on. Search TST Radio or Secret Teachings or Ryan Gable. You should be able to find us. And if you'd like to call the broadcast this evening, I don't like to give the number out a lot because we always have so much to talk about. The number is 520-367-2064. That's 520-367-2064. It is a Tucson, Arizona number as we broadcast out of the beautiful state of Arizona in the American Southwest. Again, I'm Ryan Gable, and this is The Secret Teachings. And tonight, I think I have something that can undoubtedly be considered good news. Personally, I think most of what we discuss on this broadcast is good news. Yeah, it might sound dark, it might sound scary, it might sound downright evil, demonic, diabolic, conspiratorial. But I've always said, I, I really truly believe that shining a proverbial light on such darkness 
can provide us with the knowledge, which is of course necessary, and therefore the power to overcome that darkness. And with empowerment, of course, comes responsibility, which I believe is one of the reasons why a lot of people would rather look at things as being so negative and so dark that they've automatically given up, they've automatically succumbed to a defeatist attitude, and why some people choose to live an opposite delusion, and that is the one in which we see everything as positive, love, and light, where we likewise don't have to take much of a responsibility in doing anything to make the world better or doing anything to make our lives better because, well, there's going to be something that's going to happen that's going to save us. There's a god or a goddess. There's a change. There's a schism. Something that's going to happen energetically. We're going to ascend. If you look at these two ends of the spectrum, they're very similar. You have negative and positive, pessimist and optimist. Someone who's a defeatist and someone who is what I call love and light. And there's not necessarily anything wrong, in my opinion, with looking at the world through a negative lens sometimes, especially because we're human and emotions sometimes get the best of us and that's what makes us human. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with looking at the world through a positive lens because being optimistic can sometimes lead us to solutions that we otherwise wouldn't see if we're being pessimistic. And of course, what's the big deal if we smile a little bit more, laugh a little bit more, and make more human connection? That's also emotional. That's what makes us human. But I personally don't believe that we should craft ideologies and craft emotional states around these two extremes. I I think that being upset, being frustrated, being angry is as human as being happy and as smiling and as laughing and playing around. We need both of these types of reactions. Otherwise, we don't have an understanding and we can't truly experience what one extreme or what the other extreme, just in the sense of as part of a spectrum, these two things exist on, what these things are. It's the idea that we don't really know what pain is and suffering is unless we know what pleasure is and luxury. And the bottom line is, regardless of how bad the world is, every radio show, especially late night radio, every television broadcast, every movie and TV show, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and all the other streaming platforms, virtually everything we look at, everything we watch, everything we listen to, everything we consume consciously and subconsciously and unconsciously, tells us that the world is falling apart, that the world is deteriorating ecologically, there's an environmental disaster. There are more liars in the world. There are more racists and bigots. There's more war and conflict. There's a greater chance of you dying of XYZ. But in reality, it's quite the opposite. Despite our societal and cultural perception that the world is getting worse, more dangerous, poorer, 
more discriminatory, more unfair, more unbalanced, etc. The reality is the exact opposite. In fact, poverty, for example, captured about 50% of the world's population in 1950. But since 1950, 70 years ago, half the world's population that was in poverty, that number has declined to 9.2%. In 2022, think about that. 50% of the world's population was in poverty in 1950. And 72 years later, that number has been reduced to 9.2%. Literacy has also increased over that same time period. In 1950, 36% of the world's population was considered literate. Now, again, for poverty, illiteracy, and even life expectancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality, etc., these things can be defined in different ways. But generally speaking, far less people are living in poverty. It's about 9.2% of the world's population living on about you know less than $2 a day, $1.80, something like that, whatever the UN and other groups estimate it to be. But literacy has increased from 36% to 86% today, 70-some years later. Life expectancy has more than doubled over the last few centuries and over the last few decades, really, considering human history, thousands of years, increasing from 30 years on average to 72.6 years on average, in 2022. More than doubling in a century and a half, roughly. Now, much of this has resulted from better access to food, increased hygiene, and better sanitation, including waste management. From 1970 to 2022, the percentage of people with access to sanitation increased from 23% to 53% roughly. It just about doubled in 52 years. From 1970 to 2022, 23 to 53% the number of people who had access to sanitation. Now that is an incredible number, and that reduces sickness and illness. That reduces a poor quality of life. It increases the quality of life. It increases life expectancy, which again has more than doubled. From the 1700s until today, looking back about 300 years, the rate of childhood death, for example, used to be substantially higher. In fact, a few hundred years ago, even just a hundred or so years ago, About 30% of children worldwide were dead by the time they were five years old. That number today is near 0% in most countries. The rate is about 6% globally, more so in developing countries. In the 20th century, the rate of infant mortality dropped an astounding 90% to 7.2%. Out of 1,000 live births, or 7.2 per 1,000 live births. Maternal mortality, mothers. 
Maternal mortality, the percent of mothers who died in birth, has reduced from 99% in the same time frame as infant mortality to about 0.1% or 0.1 per 1,000 live births. The leading causes of maternal death in the United States today, about 800 women die a year, are hemorrhage and cardiovascular coronary issues. And nearly three-quarters of both of those causes are totally and absolutely preventable. In the United States, the leading cause of death, for example, heart disease, along with the other leading causes of death, cancer, chronic lower respiratory disease, stroke, and, of course, unintentional injuries, are almost entirely treatable or preventable. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that eliminating three risk factors, poor diet, inactivity, and smoking, would prevent 80% of heart disease and 80% of stroke cases and 80% of type 2 diabetes. 40% of cancer, they say, could be eliminated. Worldwide, there are now more obese people than those considered underweight. The percentage has increased from 3.2% to 10.8% in men from 1975 to 2014, and from 6.4% to 14.9%, slightly higher than men, in women over the same time frame. And though weight is not necessarily a marker for proper nutrition, even the percentage of the population victim to malnutrition has dropped from 15% worldwide in the early 21st century to 8.5% in 2019. The rate of stunting for children Underweight children due to lack of food fell from 33% of all children under age 5 in 2000 to 21.3% in 2019. These are drastic drops just in a small period of time, despite the fact that we do have more people and definitions change. But then again, generally, overall speaking, Birth rates are declining, and it's not because of you know pollution and chemicals and things like that. It's, it's mostly because of more wealth, more education. The more educated, the more wealthy, the less children you tend to have. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And then, of course, you have other things, not just malnutrition, but you have mal-micronutrition, like vitamins and iodine. And, for example, vitamin A deficiency has declined by 40% in previous decades. Now, it's not just food. It's not just disease. It's not just literacy and poverty and life expectancy. Violent crime in the United States, not just around the world, but in the United States, the number has dropped drastically. We did a show on this a few months ago called In Gun We Trust. We talked about the violent crime rate Just since the 1990s in the United States alone, according to FBI and BJS statistics, violent crime fell 74% from 1993 to 2019, and property crime, which is still today much higher than violent crime, fell 71% over the same time frame. Most crime itself is internalized within gangs, so drug-related activities, etc., And, of course, individual communities of ethnicity or race. You're much more likely to be the victim of crime by someone in your own community, in your own race, in your own ethnicity than you are a group outside of your race or ethnicity. 
And that is despite the fact that most Americans believe that racial crime is soaring to numbers that have never been seen before or that crime rates in general are soaring. It's actually the opposite. They're actually declining at the opposite rate. And they have been since, well, before the 1990s, but at least the 1990s, the statistics and data shows us that. Now, since the 1800s, a few hundred years ago, the average work week has fallen from 60 hours to 40 hours. And now you have a gig economy where people can make their own schedules. You can work less and make more money. We complain about a 40-hour work week. Some people complain about a 20-hour work week. A friend of mine from high school, we've known each other about 12, 13, actually more than that, maybe like 14 years now, because we met in 11th grade. And we knew someone in our school who, to, to this day, he's 30-something, he would go to work at a, he worked at a little, a little restaurant in Morgantown, West Virginia, and uh, worked 20 hours a day and quit because he said he couldn't take a 20-hour work week. It was too much, too strenuous. And that is just baffling. We have no perspective, especially young people who complain about work. The average work week used to be 60-plus hours, and just in the last 100 years, child labor used to be a common thing. Now some kids don't work until they're in their 20s. And a lot of them feel as if they've been ripped off because someone else has a nicer car or someone else has more money than them. So they deserve that. And then you get this sense of entitlement and they think that universal basic income is is the way to be free and that's the future. When on average, work weeks have declined Gig economies have allowed people to set their own schedules and make more money. And of course, as a result of this decline in hours spent working and the overall wealth created in the 20th century alone from industrialization, and despite the economic devaluation of currency and numerous wars, most people are in possession of more money and spending it on luxuries rather than necessities that have themselves become cheaper. For example... A simple cracker or a simple cookie a hundred years ago was reserved for a class more like the Rockefellers than Main Street America. And for the rest of the world, a lot of the undeveloped world, it's still unknown, you know, today for the most part. These are luxury items. Same with things like ice cream. But now we have ice cream in our freezer that stays there so long that it goes bad. Freezer burnt. I mean, we have more freezer burnt and we throw out more produce today. About half of all produce, and we have so much freezer burnt food. We're throwing out more food now. Not to mention eating more and becoming more obese far beyond at any other point in human history. That's something that's stunning. We have an overabundance of wealth and overabundance of food. And basic necessities have gotten cheaper, so now we spend our money on other things. You know, it's like around Christmas time where you have those memes, the teenage girl, the teenage boy, they're upset at their parents because of this first world problem. They got an iPhone 9 instead of an iPhone 11 or 12 or 13, and their parents don't love them, and they're oppressed, right? 
How about transportation from cars to planes? They're safer, they're cheaper, and they're quicker than they were 100 or even 50 years ago. Cars, of course, and planes are a relatively new thing in human history. Even certain forms of pollution have declined in the past few decades. As we now emit about 21 million tons of particulate matter yearly compared with 35 million tons of particulate matter in the past 30 years. Sulfur dioxide emissions have also dropped from 20 million tons to 4 million tons. That's a substantial drop annually in the previous 30 years. So despite what we've been told or led to believe, pollution has actually decreased substantially. Though certain forms of pollution might have increased, other forms of pollution have substantially decreased. We also have things like refrigeration and freezers in most homes becoming largely available throughout the 1930s and 40s, along with washers and dryers beginning to become common in the mid-20th century. We also have widespread access not only to writing utensils and paper, we don't have to dip pens in ink anymore. We also have access to luxuries like radio and television. Most of us have two, three, four, five, six TVs. TVs in the bathroom, TVs in the refrigerator, touchscreens. We now have radios on our phones, tablets, computers. We can access the radio any and every way that we can imagine. Even things as simple as art supplies, textiles, and books are available to virtually everyone, even if they're secondhand. Books don't cost a lot of money. Textiles don't cost a lot of money. Art supplies don't cost a lot of money. Traditionally, these are things that have been only available to the wealthy, even something as simple as a cracker or a cookie. And now we keep crackers and cookies next to our bed as snacks. Now we just have an abundance of art supplies in case we want to paint something or draw something. We have a thousand books in our home, even though we don't read. And despite the data and the overall quality of life increasing for virtually everyone on the planet over the last few decades and centuries, nearly all media, movies, television, etc. constantly portray a dying world infested with crime, disease, war, discrimination, poverty, and the like. And the reality of the situation is that's just not true. I'm going to tell you what the Danish environmentalist author Bjorn Lomberg wrote in The Skeptical Environmentalist, a new book that I'm reading. When we come back from break, he starts out by saying, we are not running out of energy or natural resources. And I'm going to prove that to you tonight on The Secret Teachings. Please leave us a review on the podcast radio players. Please subscribe to the show. Please buy a book, thesecretteachings.info. There's more after this. Stay with us. It's The Secret Teachings Radio, one of the homes of the original Super Bowl analysis, exclusively airing on KTLK Digital Broadcasting, The Fringe FM. The Secret Teachings is finally available on nearly every podcast platform, from Apple to Spotify and Podcast Addict. Also available is The Secret Teachings Weekends, our one-hour Saturday morning show. Search the name and start listening today for free. But if you want to avoid those annoying ads, head on over to thesecretteachings.info and subscribe to the ad-free archive. It's got old shows, new shows, and you can also download Ryan's digital books. Subscribe today. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? 
If you enjoy the secret teachings and want to hold years of my research in your hands, visit our website and grab physical and digital copies of my books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, theology, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. And food philosophy might just change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. Remember, shipping is always included with the books. Visit www.thesecretteachings.info and get your copy today. The Secret Teachings is now on Gab and Getter. Search Ryan Gable on both to find the show or stick with The Secret Teachings in the Metaverse. Hello, folks. This is Jordan Maxwell. My website is jordanmaxwellshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with your host, Ryan Gable. Do you have everything you need to explore the secret teachings? I've got my secret socks on and my secret TV and my secret TV channel. Looks like SpongeBob's ready. Are you? Hey, this is Charlie Robinson, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. This is David Icke from davidicke.com, author of The Phantom Self and The Perception Deception, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. your host Ryan Gable and this is the Secret Teachings Radio. I did a lot of thinking today and I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of writing. I wrote about a 10-page paper on the state of world affairs but having nothing to do with current events necessarily and more so to do with things like poverty and literacy and life expectancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality, violent crime, things like this that have either declined or increased for the positive in the United States and around the world in both developing and developed countries over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, the last century, and exponentially in the last few centuries. And although I know this, Although I'm aware of this, I always feel the need to be brazenly honest with you as an audience and tell you, you know, we don't make a lot of money with this show, right? You probably know that. I make maybe, maybe $800 a month, and that's how I live, about $800 to $1,000 maximum a month, and I've saved a lot of money over my last four to five years of of working part-time jobs to finance this show. I've put this show up on Spreaker to have it monetized. I'm making like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what some radio shows that are as good as mine and a lot of radio shows that aren't worth five minutes of listening, in my opinion, are making. And that's because my show is throttled back virtually everywhere. People can't find it. Search engines, social media, they throttle it back. The point is, though, there's something that keeps this show alive. There's something that keeps me alive in reading obsessively and learning obsessively to bring you the types of things I bring you 
five nights a week on the show. I mean, for example, this week, trying to provide you with unique perspectives, we've looked at Mutual Assured Destruction TV, the mad TV of the left-right paradigm war machine this week. We looked at the Death Star on Tuesday. Mad TV Monday, Tuesday, the Death Star. The Hollow Moon and the Mathematics, the Mechanics, and the Sun-Moon-Earth Matrix. On Wednesday, we talked about the State of the Buffoonian, the State of the Union Address. Last night, we talked about what I called a space oddity, that Sun-Moon-Earth Matrix, the Mathematics and Mechanics, along with the Hollow Moon, recapping all of that, and then looking at what I called the fingerprints of intelligence, looking at our DNA and our cells, and how complex and how much proof is present in that DNA of intelligent design. Merging and mixing evolution and creationism into a new idea. Now we've covered all of that in four days this week. And I think tonight's show really brings it all together and brings this show and all of these different subjects together in a way that I guarantee you, you are not going to hear on any other radio show or any other podcast. I chose to call tonight's show Skeptical Doomsdayer. Things ain't so bad because you know what? Things aren't so bad. I make $800 to $1,000 a month. That's it. I rely on you to buy books. I rely on you to donate. I rely on you to buy subscriptions. And yet, because I'm economically literate within my own right, I've saved a lot of money. And as a result of that, I've been able to purchase certain necessities that I have as, as backups, things that are worth value, a little extra food, some ammunition, a couple of guns. And today, I've, I've been wanting to see this. I bought tickets. Well, I bought myself a ticket and my fiance a ticket. We're, we're, we're splitting the cost. I bought tickets to go see Shin Yun which is an artistical dance performance and a musical performance of traditional Chinese culture going back about 5,000 years. It's promoted as China before communism. And I'm going to go to one of these performances coming up soon. And I was thinking, you know, I have a few extra dollars to pay to go some, to something like this because, you know, I allocate my resources properly because I really wanted to see this, and I'm not the kind of person that goes to the theater, and uh, I don't even go to hockey games anymore. I don't spend much of my money on anything except food and books and bills. So I decided to buy myself a ticket, and my fiancé and I are going to go to the Shin Yun performance. And thinking about that for a moment, knowing how much money I don't make, but being able to allocate resources properly, I'm really grateful, and I hope that you can realize this too, that we have an abundance of abundance, not just in the United States, but in the Western world. And there's so much abundance in the world in general that even developing countries are being pulled out of poverty and illiteracy infant and maternal mortality, and even violent crime and crime in general, disease, etc., etc., at absolutely 
record pace. In fact, the UN says that we've reduced poverty more in the last 50 years than we did in the preceding 500. And it's been reduced practically in every single country. I started reading a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist by Bjorn Lomberg. He's a Danish environmentalist author. He's written a number of very controversial books, and I didn't start out my day by deciding to read this book. I've actually been reading Tragedy and Hope and another book by a guy named Archie Brown called The Rise and Fall of Communism. I'm also reading a book on vegan diets, even though I'm not technically a vegan. I'm also reading a book called Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, a classic I've never read. I'm also reading a Penguin classic history of the world, and I'm reading a book called Triumph of Liberty, The Origins of Totalitarianism. I'm also reading a couple of other Graham Hancock books. I'm reading Timothy Good books on UFOs. I'm reading a lot of stuff. And I got up this morning and I thought, you know, the world really isn't that bad. This idea was in my head, and I started to think, I know poverty has been reduced. I know literacy has increased. I know that disease has decreased. And despite that, we hear constantly, obsessively, every day, all day, especially the last two weeks, how dangerous the world is. How much we're lacking in, in resources and freedom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bjorn Lomberg wrote in The Skeptical Environmentalist about the real state of the world. It was published in 2001. A lot of this data is uh, even better than when he originally wrote it. So I took a little bit of data from the book after I wrote my little introduction tonight, and I double-checked it, and I also updated a few things where the data points were actually better in 2022 than they were in 2000. And here's what he said back in 2001. We are not running out of energy or natural resources. I know that that is an immediate reaction that we have to this of negativity and disgust. And that can't be true because I, that's all I know. I know that's true because environment is good. And if you disagree, you're evil. Well, we're not running out of natural resources or energy. He goes on to say, there will be more and more food per head of the world's population. Fewer and fewer people are starving. In 1900, we lived for an average of 30 years. Today, we live for 67. That number has actually been updated. I checked it out. The average age is about 72.6 years in 2022. So just in the last 20 years, the average life expectancy has gone up 5.6 years. Now, if it goes down a little bit, in the last couple of years in the United States and then goes up a little bit more in the United States and goes down. I mean, these are short, small counter trends. But when you look at the overall percentage, everything from violent crime to extreme weather, for that matter, has decreased over the last few decades. You don't have to believe me. Just look the data up for yourself. Everything I'm telling you tonight, everything I'm going to say to you tonight is going to be absolutely provable, absolutely documented from quote-unquote official mainline mainstream sources. Why you are not told this, well, we're going to get into that as well. 
He also says, according to the United Nations, we have reduced poverty, as I said a few minutes ago, more in the last 50 years than we did in the preceding 500. And it has been reduced in practically every country, end quote. Now, a lot of this concern that we have for the environment comes from our acceptance of authoritative fallacies. A lot of our concern we have for crime and safety comes from our own individual concerns for ourselves and our families. A lot of our concern for anything and everything, all the issues we're told that we have, come from our acceptance of authoritative fallacies based on the focus of our own lives. The interesting thing is we also tend to see the rest of the world as being worse off than our own locality. I think here in March of 2022, focusing on the Ukraine, and as we discussed on the State of the Buffoonian show Wednesday, there were more people at the State of the Buffoonian, State of the Union, with Ukrainian colors and flags than American colors and flags. Not even like kind of close. Virtually everybody had a Ukrainian flag and Ukrainian colors. The only reason there were American colors is because there's a a light blue color for Ukrainian colors. And it's kind of similar to our darker blue, navy blue of the American flag. We're looking at the rest of the world and we need to stand up and protect Ukraine. And while they can have guns now, of course, citizens can have guns. It's good to have guns to fight off invaders, not just your own government not just criminals, even if violent crime and crime in general are plummeting around the United States and around the world. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to have a gun to defend myself. I got a 38 special always with me. I got a 22 lever action because I like those old guns. I also got an AR-15. I got a loaded 30-round magazine. And I'm ready to lock, load, and go. Hopefully I'll never have to use that gun for anything except sport. But I have it because I see owning a firearm like that, for the same reason they're giving those types of guns out to Ukrainians, at least we're told in the media, is because it is a necessary and fundamental right and component of being a free citizen and not a serf or a slave. Now, as we see the rest of the world as being worse off than our locality, most of that stems from the fact that we tend to respond to bad news better than we respond to good news. That's why when we watch local news, for example, or even national news, we always hear about how some little old lady down the road is making jam and we can come pick up a jar at the market on Saturday morning. But then some horrible person, usually an evil racist Republican is doing something evil and COVID-19 cases are skyrocketing. But when we get back from this break at the end of the show, we'll tell you all about how a firefighter saved a cat in the sewer or saved a, a cat from a tree. We're told about big issues like global warming, but nearly all of the global warming narrative is incorrect, inaccurate, and misleading. 
Again, you can scream, no, no, Ryan, you're not a scientist. You're not a professional. You're not an expert. You don't know. Well, uh, I know a lot of scientists, like Obama said, a lot of scientists, a lot of experts that do know. And they disagree with the consensus of nine out of ten dentists agree that this mouthwash, this toothbrush, this toothpaste is good for you. That's just nine out of ten that you selected, and it's a 90% artificial synthetic consensus, just like the ridiculous study that came out that said if you put pantyhose over your head, it actually helps keep you safe from viruses if you wear a mask over that pantyhose. Not only was it ridiculous and kind of demeaning, but it also was a study conducted on four people. Not a very good base. Bjorn Lomberg wrote in The Skeptical Environmentalist of Global Warming, saying, Though its size and future projection are rather unrealistically pessimistic, it is almost certainly taking place. So he acknowledges there's some level of global warming, as I've said before. But the typical cure of early and radical fossil fuel cutbacks is way worse than the original affliction, meaning let's not just stop energy production today using fossil fuels and switch immediately to renewables because the effect will be detrimental. And moreover, he says, its total impact will not pose a devastating problem for our future in terms of what we call global warming. He says, quote, nor will we lose 25 to 50% of all species in our lifetime. That's actually a number presented by Greenpeace, which is totally and absolutely false. There's no basis to that statement. People repeat it all the time. It's just a myth. He says, quote, in fact, we are losing probably more like 0.7%. He also says, quote, acid rain does not kill the forests and the air and water around us are becoming less polluted, both things that are verifiable and things that you can check. Same author, Bjorn Lomberg, very controversial author. He wrote an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal in November of 2021. He wrote this. I thought this was interesting. He said, the UN estimates that even if no country does anything to slow global warming, the annual damage by 2100 will be equivalent to a 2.6 cut in global gross domestic product. Given that the United Nations also expects the average person to be 450% as rich in 2100 as today, that figure falls only to 434% if the temperature rises unimpeded. This is a problem, but not the end of the world. Wealthier, healthier, longer lifespans, happier, more luxuries. This is the state of affairs in the world today. And it will be better tomorrow and the next week and the next month and the next year and the next decade. So long as artificial issues, artificial cataclysms and chaos or natural cataclysms and chaos don't limit our growth. And even if it does, new technologies, things we've learned will help us to more quickly recover from those issues. However, this does not mean that everything is good enough. We have to compare our state of life today with that of 10 years ago, 100 years ago, etc. We have to obtain perspective, ladies and gentlemen, from relevant data and set our priorities straight. But first, we have to understand them and we have to understand our resource allocation. We have to find a level at which there is little pollution 
so that our money, our effort, and our time is better spent solving other problems. It's not efficient to reach net zero. This will bankrupt the world and drive, I don't have an exact number on this, but I would assume lockdowns alone drove hundreds of millions of people to starvation. A net zero would probably drive billions of people into starvation and death. We must also not be afraid to share that information because some people will say, well, if you're sharing all this positive information, it's going to make people think, hey, I can pollute. Hey, I can throw things out the window. Hey, I can do whatever I want. I mean, I find that to be an illogical argument, one based on fallacy and negligence and incompetence and immaturity. It's almost, for some people, an elitist ideology that corrupts the concepts of free thought and choice, not to mention equality. Let's not tell people how good things are because then they don't want to be good citizens. They don't want to take care of the environment. I mean, I don't care how good or bad things are. I don't care if 90% of the air I believe breathe is polluted or 1% is. That's not going to stop me from living myself a, a life that is practical and a life that is you know, reserved in some ways, but then more liberal in other ways. Like I don't spend a lot of money going out to eat or going to movies or, you know, I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't drink alcohol. So the money I save in those things I can use to go see the Shen Yun performance. I can use to buy things that are maybe a little more practical, you know, like I buy an AR-15, you know, I, uh, had a little money for my birthday, so I bought myself a Henry Lever Action 22 rifle because I liked it, you know? And otherwise, I only spend my money on books. Virtually all the little bit of additional money that comes into this show, it goes directly into me purchasing books. I, I have hundreds of books here in the studio. I uh, just bought another book today, and uh, these are books that I actually go and I read. I don't just have a bunch of books around me because I'm a pseudo intellectual who want other people to think, you know, I want other people to think who wants other people to think that, you know, I'm intelligent. I, I actually read the books that I have. So we have to realize that there are ways to allocate resources. There are ways in which we can be, which is the whole point of politics in general. And there are ways in which we can, uh, we can do good things without completely destroying our increasingly better state of existence. And despite all of these concerns and the glaringly missing context to all our issues, the world is not as in bad of shape as we are led to believe, particularly by groups like the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Greenpeace, or the World Watch Institute. I mean, we're programmed to believe that the planet is overpopulated and becoming even more so by each passing day. However, the percentage increase in the population, as we've discussed before, and a lot of this is in my book, The Technological Elixir, the percentage increase in population after being set in 1964 at 2.1% per year has been declining steadily. By 2000, the percentage was 1.26 each year. And from 2018 to 2020, the percentage had decreased respectively from 1.08% 1.05%, that's 2019, and 1.03% in 2020, down to 1% in 2021. So from 1964, when we had a 2.1% per year increase in population, that number is down to 1% in 2021. 
2021 into 2022. The peak of new people on our planet peaked in 1990 with 87 million new people. From 2018 to 2019, the global birth rate declined 1.1%. It declined again by 1.12% and 1.13% from 2019 to 2020. And in 2021, it declined an additional 1.15% to 17.668 births per 1,000 people. And that's not because of genocide. That's not because of eugenics. It's not because of pollution. It's because more education, more wealth, more abundance, statistically less children. People that are illiterate, people that aren't educated, people that aren't wealthy tend to have more kids, like the movie Idiocracy. Overpopulation itself is an entirely different issue that seems to be confirmed only by overcrowding. Yeah, things are overcrowded, rush hour traffic, but generally speaking, drive across you know, any country you live in, and it's mostly open. Yeah, I know there's farms and there's land owned by the government, but if we're talking about available land, there's plenty of land. Now, the UN predicts there's going to be a population of about 11 billion people by 2100, an estimate that wouldn't change the availability of space on the planet. There'd still be plenty of space. Our friend Joseph Lavelle, who called into the broadcast earlier this week to tell us about the economic impact of sanctions on Russia, messaged me today and he said he read my monologue. I sent it to him for tonight's show, The Skeptical Doomsdayer, the name of tonight's show. And he mentioned to me that book on population by Jim Mars, who was a uh, famous and award-winning journalist, writer, and he was our friend here on The Secret Teachings. Jim was on the show quite a bit. And he wrote this. He said, if the world's population could spread out and avoid concentrating in sprawling metropolitan centers, citizens would most likely be much happier and better off. The idea of limiting the burgeoning Earth's population may appear desirable as the increasing numbers of humans as well as their waste continues placing a strain on the planet. The burning question is, who gets to decide which segments of the population must forego childbearing for the good of the majority? So far, it is the wealthy globalists who have taken the lead in supporting ways to hold down population growth through eugenics, drugs, and birth control measures, end quote. And although that is true, that statement's also not fully in context to the positive because there's not an overpopulation of this planet. There's an overcrowding, as Jim Mars alludes to. And the most factual statement in this book, and that specific statement that he made, is the last part of it, who gets to decide if all the world is really this messed up? Who gets to decide who can have kids? Who gets to decide who can have resources? Well, self-appointed elitists, who also, generally speaking, don't let us know that our lives are actually getting much, much better. We're told they're getting worse, so they can offer solutions to problems that don't exist. I mean, we don't have a shortage of food or clean water either, not only has the cost of food gone down generally, but most developing countries have increased their caloric intake from 2,463 calories per person per day to 2,663 throughout the 1990s, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. The overall number of starving people and the percentage of starving people has also declined in recent decades. 
From 1970 to 1996, the percentage of all people in developing countries who were starving dropped significantly from 35% to 18%. That number fell again to nearly half of that percent by 2022 at about 10%. In the 1970s, only about 30% of the people in the world that were developing, the developing world, had access to clean drinking water. By 2022, that number climbed to around 75 to 80%. In other words, we're doing a lot better than you would think, and things ain't so bad, despite what media and Hollywood tell you to convince you the world is horrible to drive us back into a world of serfdom and slavery, something else we're going to talk about in the next advertisement-free hour of The Secret Teachings. Please visit our website at thesecretteachings.info. I put so much work, so much energy, so much effort into this show. Please consider supporting us financially, buying a book, subscribing to the show. Even if it's for a friend of yours, buy a book, subscribe for them, share your login, donate a few dollars, grab one of our new Tree of Life t-shirts, check us out on Patreon, grab a water filter, and stay tuned to The Secret Teachings. There's more after this. Email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. The Secret Teachings is finally available on nearly every podcast platform from Apple and Spreaker to Spotify and Podcast Addict. Also available as TST Weekends, our one-hour Saturday morning show. Search the show name and start listening today for free. And if you want to avoid those annoying ads, visit www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe to our ad-free archive with some of our older shows included. You'll get a private RSS feed and access to the Montage Archive and my digital books. Subscribe today or listen to the free show archive at thesecretteachings.info. If you enjoy The Secret Teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, grab a physical and digital copy of his books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. Visit thesecretteachings.info. So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on, 24-7, with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online, or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. You are listening to The Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email rdgable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings, or visit the website at www.thesecretteachings.info. 
People ask me all the time what they can do to take control of their lives when facing a daily onslaught of dis- and misinformation. I say take control of your body and mind with water filtration. Visit www.thesecretteachings.info and click on our affiliate sponsor link with Pro One Water Filters at the top of the page to search for a water filter for the home, camping trip, and even the shower. They filter countless contaminants and make a wonderful gift for friends, family, and yourself. That's Pro One Water Filters at thesecretteachings.info. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Hey there, this is Greg Carlwood of the Higher Side Chats, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Generally speaking, everything from electricity to refrigeration, freezers, pens, pencils, paper, art supplies, textiles, food, everything has become so widely available due to the fact that we have incredible wealth, not just in the United States, but in the Western world and even now far more in the developing world than at any other point in human history, much of which was filled with serfdom and slavery. Some of the world's still existing in those conditions today. However, poverty since the 1950s worldwide has declined from 50% to 9.2%. Literacy has increased over the same period from 36% worldwide to 86%. Life expectancy has more than doubled over the last 100 years, increasing from about 30 years on average to 72.6 years. In fact, it's increased over five years on average since the early 2000s, which is an incredible increase. And although it's declined a little bit in the last year or two here in the United States, there's a lot of reasons for that. You see these small counter trends over time in Temperature, storm intensity, age, maybe even literacy or poverty. But these are counter trends that are just tiny little segments of a chart. Like when we say it was the hottest year on record. Well, what is the record? The last six months, it might have been the hottest you know, day or the hottest week on record if it was six months. The hottest year if it goes back two or three years. Perspective matters a lot. This is what a lot of scientists, a lot of professors, a lot of people with political and ideological basises, beliefs, will do intentionally or unintentionally with data, with statistics. Our life expectancy has increased because of better access to food and nutrition, increased hygiene, better sanitation, including waste management. This has also eradicated a lot of so-called infectious diseases. Infant mortality has dropped 90%. 90% in the 20th century. Maternal mortality declined 99% in the 20th century. About 800 women die a year in the U.S. 
from things like hemorrhage and cardiovascular coronary issues during birth. And even those deaths, about three quarters of both of those major causes are completely preventable. Most of our major diseases, heart disease, cancer, chronic and lower respiratory diseases, stroke. About 80% of heart disease and stroke cases, 80% of diabetes, 40% of cancer are considered reversible, preventable with better diet, better activity, exercising just a little bit and smoking less. Not even stopping smoking, not even working out every day, not even, you know, eating quote unquote extremely healthy, just better diet, more activity, less smoking. I mean, this is incredible. We now have more obese people than people who are underweight. We have less people that are malnourished and less people that are malnourished with micronutrients like vitamin A or iodine. Here in the States, as well as around the rest of the world, and in the States in particular, a lot of coverage of things like violent crime fills the nightly news. But violent crime has fallen 74% since 1993. Property crime, 71%, despite the fact that that is one of the main forms of crime. And most of that crime, and crime in general, is gangs, drugs, and things that are within your own ethnicity or race. I mean, I looked up crime... When I moved to Tucson, Arizona, I had lived here before, and I know that the rate of crime in Tucson is statistically, in a lot of places, a little bit higher than even it was in Rochester, New York. Obviously, I feel safer here because, you know, I can carry some heat. I can throw that heat up on the dashboard, locked and loaded, and the cops just give me a thumbs up. But generally speaking, virtually all the crime here in Tucson, contrary to the crime in some place like Rochester, New York, And most of the crime across the United States is related crime in the sense that we know the person who's committing the crime. We know that uh, the person committing the rape, the person kidnapping the child, for example, that's, you know, virtually always someone that we know. You know, when a husband dies or a wife dies, it's from, from homicide, it's usually the wife or husband responsible. Most crime is property crime here in Tucson. And most of that property crime is gang-related, drug-related. Most crimes are ethnic or racially specific within one's own ethnicity or race. You're not more likely to be killed by uh, a white person if you're black, unless you look at the statistic from the point of view of most of the population's white. So technically, if you're going to be victim of a crime or be killed by a group, it's statistically likely that it's going to be white, despite the fact that If you're black, you make up about 13, 14% of the population. And despite that, if you're white, you're still more likely to be killed by a black person. Generally speaking, statistically, uh, depending on the statistics you look at, than than a white person, especially in black and, you know, um, even Asian communities, etc. And I'm not intending to get into the specifics here because we've done shows on this before. But you're more likely to be victim of crime within your own ethnicity or race. And, and, and it's the same with white, black, doesn't matter. You know, over the last 200 years, the work week, people complain and bitch and moan and whine. I got to work 40 hours a week. Kids complain. I got to work 20 hours a week, part-time. And I had a friend from high school. He quit a 20-hour-a-week job. He said he couldn't handle it. Had to take four, five, six, 15-minute breaks. It's like, dude, you're working 20 hours a week. <laughs> It's 20 hours a week and you got to take 15 smoke breaks. Jesus Christ. 
And the fact is, now with gigs, people are setting their own schedules. People are making more money. Luxuries now are the things we spend our money on. Our, 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 th- our things that we normally would spend money on uh, necessities are cheaper. And uh, basic things like crackers and cookies that were unheard of for the average person to have access to in the early 20th century due to innovation, industrialization, creation of more wealth, transportation, hygiene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, now have become things that we have so so much of and so many of that a lot of it just goes to waste. And we throw out about 40% of our food supply here in the United States. It's astounding we have this much wealth. And I can tell you this, communism didn't build that wealth. Capitalism built that wealth. And not all capitalism, not predatory capitalism, but the kind of capitalism that is a free market system where we allow a marketplace of free ideas and innovation, where we allow competition and where competition isn't, quote, a sin, because that's not capitalism as far as I'm concerned. But that's what built the wealthy world. That's what gives you the right to spit on the American flag. That's what gives you a right to spit on, generally speaking, you having to do less work, being able to live longer, having more money. Yes, there's things like inflation and devaluation and now paying $5 a gallon for gas, you know, for uh, $5 a gallon for gas. But generally speaking, life is much better today. That doesn't mean that we should accept things when they go wrong today, accept $5 a gallon for gas because a guy with a blue tie is in the White House. But we should recognize that we're still pretty well off. Transportation, cars, planes, etc., much cheaper than they were and much safer and much quicker than, say, 50 years ago. We emit less pollution, like less particulate matter. 21 million tons down from 35 million tons 30-something years ago. We have refrigerators, freezers, we have washers, we have dryers. These are things that were basically unheard of in every single home three-quarters of a century ago, even half a century ago. We have access to writing utensils, paper, radio, television, books, art supplies, textiles, you name it, even if this stuff is coming secondhand. Despite the data that overall life quality is increasing, we still see a constant portrayal of dying environments, crime, disease, war, discrimination, poverty, and the like. You hear all about things like we're going to starve to death, don't have enough resources, the planet is going to heat up and we're all going to die. We hear that things like animals are going extinct at a a record pace, but none of this is actually accurate. None of this is actually correct. They say the planet's overpopulated. There's more and more people, more people now than ever. Well, I mean, yeah, there's more people now than ever, but what's the context to that? In 1964, 2.17% of the population was increasing every year, but it's been declining since then. In 2000, it was 1.26% of the population increased. In 2001, it's 1%. Why? Well, because of more wealth. Why? Because of more abundance. These are the things that, typically cultivate an environment where we, well, we have less kids. It's like idiocracy. All the dumb people are having lots of kids. All the smart people are waiting, and then, you know, it's too late. We really don't have a shortage of food or clean water either. In the 1970s, about 30% of the people in developing 
countries had access to clean drinking water. By 2022, the number climbed around 75%. I mean, with things like artificial light, we can grow our own food in a very small little area. I mean, even certain kinds of gardening, if we grow food ourselves, we can grow a, a garden and have a feast in our own little communities, just in our you know our own household. I mean, if we do this in a community, not a commie commune, but if you have a community garden, you can grow enough food to sustain you and, depending on how big it is, a lot of other people. Hydroponics produce you know, uh, even more with less space sometimes, or at least about the same amount, at least enough to sustain you. And according to the FAO of the United Nations, food production up to 2030 shows that, quote, land for food production is seen to have become less scarce, not scarcer. That's according to the UN. We actually have so much food today We throw out about 40 to 50% of that food in the United States alone. We waste it. It goes bad. It expires. It spoils before we can consume it. That is and should be recognized as absolutely ridiculous, especially when we consider the fact that all we hear about is how there aren't enough resources and we're all going to die soon. This is our World War II, says Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 2030 is the year. Well, 2030 is the year that the technocrats in Silicon Valley and Graphene Valley and globalists and the WEF, that's the time period in which they're planning to cultivate a new form of serfdom and slavery. We're told the planet's hotter. It's not actually any hotter. Storms aren't any worse. Forests are not as depleted as we have been led to believe, and animals are not necessarily going extinct at record rates. Also, the ice caps are not melting absolutely. In fact, the hottest period within human history was was established around the medieval warm period, what is known as the medieval warm period, 800 to 1300 AD. As London's newspaper, The Telegraph, reported, because it wasn't convenient to the narrative, quote, the United Nations abolished the medieval warm period. Graphs from NOAA.gov show from 1880 to 2015 a warming trend. But like I told you earlier, looking at small segments of of data over hundreds and thousands of years and isolating 100 years or 50 years or 2 years takes the information out of context. In the middle of this trend of warming when the temperatures decreased uh, or increased, there was actually a major decrease. There's an increase, there's a decrease, increase, that's natural. There's a decrease throughout the 1940s and 1950s, and even into the 1960s and 70s, where temperatures take a plummet. And the fluctuation is part of a cycle of heating and cooling. When officials then announce a warming trend, they select the period after the cooling phase in order to promote a scientific consensus that there is warming. And the fact is that there is an increase in temperature from the particular perspective on the graph, but generally speaking, the temperature is actually declining. And without that context, that this is part of a natural cycle, anyone and anything can be blamed. For example, according to the New York Times in 1989, there's been no warming trend whatsoever for more than 100 years. How is that possible for the New York Times to report that when virtually everything we hear, especially from those political-minded or those left-leaning sources, is that the world is going to end. 
The one consistent factor in temperature fluctuation is also the sun, along with the moon, which plays a vital role in environmental factors that we don't consider. It also plays a major part in weather. And in fact, hurricanes, for example, have been documented in decline for decades, falling around at a rate 1.63 days of activity every decade they've been falling. Furthermore, this is a really fascinating story. I put this in my book, The Technological Elixir, which is available at thesecretteachings.info. If you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Gable, your host. This is The Secret Teachings Radio, five nights a week, Monday through Friday. Skeptical doomsday or things ain't so bad. The date, March 4th into March 5th, Friday into Saturday, 2022. Reported by the Washington Post newspaper in 2015, a team of 38 scientists found that the planet, our planet, is home to 3.04 trillion, with a T, trees, blowing away the previous estimate of 400 billion. That means, the researchers say, there are 422 trees for every person on Earth. Now that's, that's a big number, wouldn't you say? That's a big difference, wouldn't you say? And here's the issue. Is that factored into the climate models? Because trees absorb carbon dioxide, do they not? That is the oxygen of plants. This does nothing also to account for tree planting programs or the other numerous CO2 scrubbing plants on this planet. I mean, the Worldwide Fund for Nature told the public in 1996 that forest was being lost at an alarming rate. Forest loss increased, they said, by 34% since 1992. Scary sounding, but the context of the land loss to that which exists or grew is not presented, and neither is the fact that 1994 to 1995 was the peak year of deforestation. As Bjorn Lomberg points out in The Skeptical Environmentalist, The total forest lost in the Amazon since the arrival of man has only amounted to 14%. And the FAO of the United Nations also documents that forest cover around the world has increased 0.85% from 30.04 to 30.89% from 1950 to 1994. I mean, that doesn't mean that there's more forest necessarily, although there are more plants, more I mean, more trees specifically being planted. And NASA says the world's actually getting greener because of carbon dioxide. Uh, what it means is that you have more recognition and more ability, new technology to create new estimates and make new observations that lead scientists to say, oops, there aren't a certain number of trees like, well, originally they were saying a couple hundred billion. There's actually trillions of trees. And they absorb a lot of carbon dioxide, don't they? The UN also details that the rate of deforestation, however small, decreased from the 1980s into the 1990s, from 0.346% to 0.32%, really small number, but still a decrease in deforestation. Forest fires were told the world's on fire, but they're also substantially less than they were in the 1920s and 1930s per annual burned area by millions of acres. As of 2020, the number was about 25% of what it had been 90 years previous. And according to the FAO, forest area grew by an estimated 
43.24 million kilometers squared to 43.04 million kilometers squared from 1950 to 1994. That is a big number considering that although it seems to be tiny, we're talking about planet-wide. There's a lot more forest, a lot more trees, a lot more green than we think. Also, animals. Animals studied in forests. Sea life, etc. are often thought of as going extinct rapidly. Half of all species, we're told, within a generation, according to Greenpeace. However, there is literally no data to support this, just like Al Gore's polar bears, which some data shows are increasing in population. See, the real figure of disappearing animals is closer to 0.7% per 50 years. That's a percentage not accounting for numerous positive aspects like how many are saved, how many new species emerge, and how many species we discover, not to mention how many we've yet to catalog that might have been observed but not specifically quote-unquote discovered yet or not specifically cataloged yet, you know, officially. Bjorn Lomberg also comments on this, stating that research is often conducted on species that are known to be in trouble, therefore resulting in biased estimates of decline. Also, here's a Really interesting story. I've been talking about this for nine years. A New York Times article in 2012 reported that Arctic sea ice fell to a record low. The article said, quote, the amount of sea ice in the Arctic has fallen to the lowest level on record, a confirmation of the drastic warming in the region and a likely harbinger of larger changes to come, end quote. Accompanying the article were two images, one from 1979 and another from 2012. Now, there was clearly substantial ice loss in the images, but context is missing. Within one year, new satellite images showed as much or more Arctic ice than even in 1979. In other words, from 1979 to 2012, there were variations in ice loss. You could have looked at satellite images from those those decades, and it was less, certainly in 2012 than 1979. However... If you look at it the next year, it's actually much, much more than it was in 2012, maybe even more than 1979. Plus, you know, we have different hemispheres, so when it's winter in one, it's summer in the other, summer in one, it's winter in the other, and a lot of people don't understand that, so they think, well, there's less ice when it's really, really cold in the north. That's confusing. Shouldn't it be more ice? It must be global warming. No, it's because it's, it's actually the summer in those places. Even our energy and our power are getting cheaper and cleaner and therefore more widely available, both oil and coal and renewables. Three major studies, this is really fascinating, three major studies by the U.S. Department of Energy, the European Union, and the Empire State Electric and New York State Energy Research and Development Authority back in the 1990s, as explained by Bjorn Lomborg, reported the following. Attempted, they attempted to examine all costs associated with electricity production, all the way from the mortal risks of mining coal, 
the traffic hazards of transportation and occupational hazards of production, including consequences of acid rain, soot, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and ozone on lakes, crops, buildings, children, and old people, and up to the consequences of tax codes and occupation, plus a long, long list of other similar considerations and costs. So they did a lot of investigation. And here's what they found. They still find the extra cost to be less than the gap between renewable and fossil fuels. It's actually less to gradually move rather than drastically move. But politicians make it seem like we have 12 years, we're all going to die. I mean, we'll gradually move to other forms of of energy. There's no doubt about that, but not because of environmentalism per se or left-leaning policies or whatever, but because it's more practical to move slowly as we develop new technologies. And within 50 to 100 years, we have washers and dryers and freezers and refrigerators and crackers and cookies and things that otherwise have been non-existent and things that are now not only, um, you know, for some they're still luxuries, but they're commonplace. We just don't even think about them anymore. Art supplies, textiles, etc., books, etc. And since renewables make up such a small percentage of all energy, when we have a large growth rate in renewables, that's not really difficult to come by. Whereas the same percentage increase, let's say, for oil is massively more in comparison. Like, for example, in 1988, the amount of energy and the 2% oil increase were still two, uh, actually 302, three, 323 times bigger than the 20% increase in wind energy. Again, the, the, the increase in oil at 2% was a bigger increase than the 20% in wind energy because it's such a small part of the market. Energies become cheaper and more widely available, such as electricity now being available in nearly all homes in 21st century developed countries. That's new in the last 100 years. Now, these portrayals of a society that cultivate a negative, pessimistic, and defeatist worldview are absolutely being used to generate in the mind of the public a collective vision that something has to be done to stop all of this. Right? The solution to these problems, then, is a one-size-fits-all policy of top-down governmental control worldwide. This is despite the fact that most countries have become freer in the last 100 years rather than less free. They become wealthier. They have more abundance. These problems are being used to offer centralized authoritarian controls and solutions that cost more and produce more bad than good. Many of these ideologies are modern forums. This is my view. This is the historical context, I believe. Many of these ideologies are modern forms of sophisticated mental and psychological slavery to get people not only to, as Aldous Huxley wrote, love their servitude, but to encourage them to protect it in the name of weaponized environmentalism. I mean, when you look at the details, most models that predict ecological collapse, which are legion, are based on a set of estimates, a set of data placed into a computer program, and nearly all turn out to be false. They are, after all, mere projections, predictions, and just outright guesses. Who knows? Due to the misleading nature of this information, and the false nature of this information, be it the result of mistake or just lack of details, I mean, most of our resources, for example, are actually far more abundant and available in the 21st century than in previous centuries. I'll tell you about that in just one moment. 
want to remind you you're listening to The Secret Teachings Radio. I'm Ryan Gable, your host. I want to thank you for tuning in worldwide tonight, Friday into Saturday, March 5th, or 4th into March 5th, 2022. Please subscribe to our archive to get access to the shows, the montages, the digital books. You get a free copy of one of my books when you subscribe for one year. You can also find us on Patreon for behind-the-scenes content. Grab a water filter. There's something else that, generally speaking, that is a modern-day luxury that we take for granted. Get a water filter from Pro One Water Filters. The link is on our website. Also, check out the Tuttle Twins link we have for their curriculum and books for kids and teenagers, even young adults. And email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. That's rdgable at yahoo.com. Don't forget also to leave us a review and give us some stars on the podcast and radio. Players, please just take a moment to do that. It helps to support the show. And also you can share us you know, on social media. I really appreciate that if you do that. So we have... A lot more resources than we've been led to believe. We have so much food, we're actually throwing food out at a rate of about 40% of all food produced in the United States alone. Things are expiring, things are spoiling, even with increased shelf life, even with such an abundance of food to consume, we consume so much, we're more obese now than underweight. We're more nourished now than malnourished. We're more efficiently full of micronutrients than we have been before. There's still a lot of problems in the world, but... It's a lot better off than we had been. Anybody that says we shouldn't talk about these benefits and these this growth of life expectancy and literacy and the decrease in poverty and violent crime, I believe are just believing in an elitist ideology that transfers intellectual wealth and the reality of our world into the hands of globalists, elitists, even corporations and big banks that wish to cultivate what for most of human history has been the standard status quo, and that is slavery and servitude to large systems, to a church, to a landlord, to an emperor, to a king, etc., basically cultivating serfdom, which has been virtually eliminated in all countries across the world in the last 100-plus years. I mean, we have so many resources. Think about this. Aluminum, iron, copper, and zinc, we're told are pretty much depleted or they're going to be depleted. But they're not nearly depleted. We use 16 times more aluminum in the 21st century than in 1950. And yet, however, the remaining years of availability for consumption has increased. You want to explain that? How is that possible? Well, because we find new ways to extract it. We find New reserves. We find new ways to recycle it. Aluminum is 16 times higher in terms of its usage in the 21st century than in 1950. But available consumption has increased from 171 years of those current consumption statistics to 276 years since 1950. Likewise, iron was estimated in 1957 by the U.S. Geological Service to be 25 billion tons, but we've used 35 billion since then, and the reserve is now estimated to be 300 billion tons, despite production annually doubling in the same time frame. Copper is estimated to be available for another 50 years, a number more than in 1950, 
when the estimate was 42 years. Should have ran out by 1992. It didn't. We actually have 50 more years at least of copper, despite us having quintupled our consumption. That's more than one or two or three times. The world reserve of copper was 100 million tons, even though we have produced 338 million tons of copper because we have new estimates, we're finding more, we can extract more, we are recycling more, etc. The reserve now is 650 million. That's over six times the previous estimate. Zinc was also estimated to be 70 million tons in reserve in the 1950s, despite us having used over 200 million tons since then. Zinc now has a reserve base of about 430 million tons. Now, the reason for this apparently confusing and baffling data is that much is based on estimates and what we consider to be known or a known reserve. We also have gotten better at extracting resources and finding them, not to mention, well, we're recycling, we're substituting them. And amazingly, the same is true for gold and silver. Estimates of Reserve increasing despite a limited number of years left in extraction and decades of increased production. How is that possible? Well, same reasons I just gave you. I mean, think about this. This is something that always gets me in trouble. Paper or plastic? It's kind of an iconic question, right? We have states in the U.S. that are banning or limiting plastic production and usage. And they're creating chemically induced biodegradable bags or they're banning plastic bags entirely. Now, we can, we can think about this argument, paper or plastic, but here's the reality. I mean, you could use a reusable bag, but buying one actually has a worse effect, generally speaking, statistically, on resources and energy, etc. So buying a bag doesn't solve the problem. In fact, buying a bag as a reusable makes the problem worse. But... Again, there's also a lot of context perhaps missing from that argument. So here's the bottom line. Although plastic bags are a major source of pollution and litter, no one's going to dispute that, and contribute to disruption of the ecosystem to some extent, paper bags, which do biodegrade quicker, provide not less but more danger across the board. So changing to paper doesn't solve the problem. Paper weighs more, costs more in resources and fuel to manufacture and ship, and Paper is mostly non-reusable and fills up land fills quicker. I mean, have you ever considered that? You ever thought about paper in that way? On the contrary, plastic bag manufacturing is more friendly to the environment, allows for more reuse, and helps preserve food. We don't necessarily think about that, though, because we've been brainwashed that plastic is bad, paper is good. I'm not saying produce more plastic, make the world a plastic-based world. I'm saying that if you're worried about plastic pollution, there's not as much to be worried about, and paper isn't the solution to that problem. I mean, plastic bags outperform paper and produce less waste than paper. Of all the plastic pollution, nearly all of it comes anyway from a handful of rivers in Africa and Asia, demonstrating that a complete halt in usage in the United States would have virtually no outcome globally. People will ask, does that mean I shouldn't recycle? Does that mean I shouldn't be a good person? Why would limited responsibility and limited 
uh, uh, reaction based on your actions, limited uh, reaction to the action, make you not want to be a good person? Shouldn't you want to be a good person and, and be moral and ethical and conserve your resources regardless of how much of it is your responsibility or how much of it is going, going to affect the rest of the world? What kind of immature unethical, immoral statement is that? Are you saying we should use plastic and it doesn't matter because it's not all our problem? How, how, how did you graduate high school? How do you converse with people? How do you hold a job? It, 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 Jesus Christ. I mean, the replacing of plastic with paper seems like a green and progressive idea, right? But it once more demonstrates the symbolic nature of a gesture. The same is true for battery-powered electric cars, the resource extraction alone being detrimental in comparison. And then one must factor in the electricity burn to charge them. I mean, you're, it's, it's not having this grand effect that you think it's happening for the, having for the positive. The same is true for, let's say, soy production, a crop that's, well, it's, it's devastated some forests. It's wreaked havoc on the environment from increased chemical usage, among other things. But generally speaking, the forest is still okay. <laughs> and the same is true for plastic, um, wooden, recycled, or bamboo toothbrushes. Think about this. I mean, I have a bamboo toothbrush. I like it better than a plastic toothbrush. But I also have a plastic toothbrush, too. I've got a couple toothbrushes. But plastic, wooden, recycled, or bamboo toothbrushes, considering their weight and overall contribution to waste, which is small. Think about this. The average person in developed countries generates between 1 and 10 pounds of waste a day. The average toothbrush weighs about 15 grams. That's about half an ounce. Human waste can be converted to between 16 and 160 ounces a day. All right? A toothbrush weighs about half an ounce on average. That means, considering that most people rarely replace their toothbrush anyway there is virtually no significance produced by using other vari- uh, vari- uh, variations or varieties of toothbrushes to save the planet. It has, I mean, even if you change your toothbrush out four times a year, the, d- the dentists recommend that number. You're looking at two ounces that you're saving the planet when the average uh, more conservative individual is going to produce you know, between 16 and 160 ounces a day of waste in the developed world. So so you can reuse a wooden toothbrush. It ain't going to have much of an effect. It probably has a more, you know, detrimental effect actually on the environment. And of course, in the modern world, though, most ecological disasters, you know, uh, as a result of, let's say, extinguished resources and too many people are actually really unlikely because increased education and wealth reduces fertility. However, we have to ask then, why does the UN's Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, in a published paper from 2005 to 2014 called Education for Sustainable Development Toolkit, suggest the opposite? The words sustainable development, the words climate change, the word green, you know, these are things that are part of a larger agenda. And that's evidenced by the fact that UNESCO says the UN actually expresses concern that, quote, education threatens the planet. How? Higher income is associated not only with less children, but with more education and more environmental 
stability. Anyone saying different is confused, misled, or ideologically corrupt, or they have an agenda because more education, more wealth, more environmental sustainability, less children. That's a fact. Now, you read through the report from Iron Mountain on the possibility and desirability of peace. They talk about using war to control society. They write that war is desirable as the principal organizing force. The essential economic stabilizer of modern societies, not only war, but other forms of war. For example, massive global environmental pollution that could be used, in their words, massive global environmental pollution, including fictitious alternative enemies, new religions or mythologies, social welfare programs, even eugenics and social-oriented blood games like sports, etc. These can all be used to control the population. Green movements are another because we have a fear of what we are doing to the planet. We are good, decent people, and that is being exploited. Under sociological control in the report, they recommended intensified environmental pollution and new religions or mythologies and socially oriented blood games, as I said, to be the methods by which to control the population. They say poisoning of the air and the principled sources of food and water supply is already well advanced and at first glance would seem promising in this respect. It constitutes a threat that can be dealt with only through social organization and political power. The Club of Rome's 1991 publication, The First Global Revolution, said, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, and water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. That's right. And under the ecological section of Iron Mountain, the report, the aim became even more clear. They just outright said, a comprehensive program of applied eugenics. Now, these ideas are based in population control and eugenics, environmental management, planned economies, etc., not in free societies. And this is a really dangerous and a really scary thing. So here's the reality. I'm going to break this down for you as quickly as possible. Of course, you can go back and listen to the broadcast in the archive at thesecretteachings.info or get the ad-free version at thesecretteachings.info by subscribing to the show. I'm providing you with literally like eight hours of research today. And this is stuff you can all fact check for yourself. I can also send you this this paper that I, I wrote down kind of as a monologue. Throughout nearly all of human history, for thousands of years, the concept of individual rights, freedom, liberty, etc. was totally and absolutely non-existent. According to historian Fernand Brodel, slavery was the normal condition of most people. He said it was, quote, a universal phenomenon affecting all primitive societies, and it indeed was. Slavery was not unique to the United States, and slavery is not the inherent driving force of the United States. However, it is the inherent driving force of most countries around the world. And the United States is not the country that created slavery. We are the country that effectively ended slavery. We still have forms of debt slavery, but generally speaking, people are more free, more prosperous, more wealthy, live longer, are healthier, are happier, and have more luxuries today than at any other time in human history. And yet we're encouraged to rise up against the system. We're encouraged to rise up against the elite. 
Now, I know that this is something that is common throughout history. Uprisings against systems of exploitation and slavery in the form of the peasantry are not recent events. Revolutionary priest John Ball had inflamed the peasantry against lords years before the peasant revolution in England in 1381. And those like him, such as the revolutionary of the Upper Rhine, we don't know his name for sure or her name, he advocated for the abolition of private property, writing, What a lot of harm springs from self-seeking. It is necessary, therefore, that all property shall become one single property. Then there will indeed be one shepherd and one sheepfold. He, like the German preacher Thomas Muntzer, advocated for terrorism, violence, and massacre in order to achieve these ends. The first person to use the word communist was Ine Kebe in 1840. He founded a movement known as Icaria, or Icaria, I-C-A-R-I-A, and envisioned an egalitarian community in which there's no money, there's no private property, and wherein all things are shared in common. Sir Thomas More is famous for his 1516 publication called Utopia, a dialogue arguing for the abolition of private property to prevent things like you know, poverty, hardship, and general worry. And how similar are these ideas to Klaus Schwab of the WEF, the World Economic Forum, saying that in the new world, you will own nothing and be happy. People like Thomas, Thomas More, also believed in class warfare. Others like Italian Dominican monk Tommaso Campanelli, who published The City of the Sun in 1602, another utopian book, saw the abolition of the family as the major obstacle to a communist state. This is why... Black Lives Matter, BLM, is literally a Marxist organization in the name of the, in the, in the, in the words of the founder, and in the name of racial equality and Black Lives Mattering, that fallacy, that rhetoric, they literally say their goal is to upend Western prescribed family structures and to raise kids in villages. These are socialist, more so communist ideologies. This is cultural, and political Marxism, as I've been telling you for years here on this show. And then people tell me, oh, I went and looked it up. You're right. Well, yes, I'm right, because I don't, I don't open my mouth unless I, unless I know what I'm talking about. And I get things wrong sometimes, but generally speaking, you know, we're right directly over the target. Now, people like Tommaso Campanelli also advocated for the same thing that Black Lives Matter is advocating for. He advocated for the abduction of children by the state, basically the state taking children in order to teach them what their parents failed to teach. That is literally what Black Lives Matter said on their website. And I have quotes of that in my book, The Technological Elixir. Another individual, and I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name precisely, Gracias Befu of Bavuism, uh, Bab, I think it's Babuism. He believed that equality was a supreme value. Equality, equality, equality. And in order to teach it, he desired the dictatorship to destroy all enemies of equality. Anybody who disagrees, you don't like equality. You're a racist, a sexist, a bigot, part of the patriarchy. Same exact story we hear today. A French theorist, Comte de Saint-Simon, was more of a socialist, believing that free economic competition produced poverty. 
It's actually the absolute opposite. Free economic competition drives prices down, creates immense wealth on levels that the world's ever seen before. He desired a planned economy according to social needs, which, of course, the government can never determine. Only a free market can determine that in people making free decisions of their own free will. A planned economy leads to starvation on a mass scale and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people dying. Others like Charles Fourier and Perriot Joseph Proudhon were not as harsh. They believed private property could be retained, but work should be carried out by cooperatives and the government should act as an economic administrator. They also desired a one-world language and the abolition of hired labor. Where have we heard the idea of a one-world language, one-world currency? You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. I mean, the ideas of class warfare and the abolition of hired labor and private property were hardened intensely by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto published in 1848, where they wrote the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggles. You know, except the fact is they, they basically manufactured these class struggles to some degree. And, um, you know, they, they, they provided... Uh, what they believed was proof of the existence of classes, that class struggles leads to dictatorship of the proletariat, and that such rule facilitates the transition to a classless society. Engels later wrote that that system was to be called communism, not socialism, because the latter was identified with utopian systems, and Marx saw his system as scientific, right? Scientific. Socialism later would become associated with a welfare state, and a form of soft communism, though there were those such as Robert Owen, 1751 to 1858 he lived, who took an even softer approach, one may say an elitist approach, believing that humans could be perfected if educated correctly and given the right environment. Who's going to make that decision, though? Well, Robert Owen. He didn't believe in violence like Thomas Muntzer or the later Ulyanov, better known as Vladimir Lenin, his real name Ulyanov, who felt that the ends always justified the means. That's something we always hear about Hitler, but never about Vladimir Lenin or Iozeb Jagshvili, which I don't think I pronounced that name right. Uh, he was a Georgian Bolshevik, better known as Joseph Stalin. And Stalin actually takes the, the, the name Stalin from the Russian word for steel, Stahl. And he felt the same way as Lenin, the ends justified the means. Now, Owen's approach was echoed partly by Edward Bernstein, who identified with the gradualist approach of British Fabian socialists. Bernstein wrote, quote, a greater security for lasting success lies in a steady advance than in the possibilities offered by a catastrophic crash. So let's steadily advance and specifically let's use democracy in order to steadily advance to this so-called utopian society or a scientific utopia if we're looking at it from Marx and Engels' point of view. An opponent of Bernstein was Karl Kotsky, who was more centrist in his approach. Kotsky offered the idea that representative government could be used to bring about dictatorship. So this is more of a parliamentary system, more of a democracy. He said a genuine parliamentary regime can be just as good as you know an, an instrument for dictatorship of the proletariat as it is an instrument for the dictatorship of the burgessy. You know, that's the elite classes, which ultimately boils down to anybody who questions the state, anybody who has more than their neighbor, even if it's a pot or a, a pencil or a spoon or a fork. Leon Trotsky, another, took a similar approach. He disagreed with Lenin's absolute majority viewpoint, though he formulated the idea of a permanent revolution, you know, consistent revolution, continuous class warfare. 
He wrote that Lenin's methods lead to this. The party organization first substitutes itself for the party as a whole, then the central committee substitutes itself for the organization, and finally a single dictator substitutes himself for the central committee. Trotsky was, was right about this. Uh, Trotsky also saw the immense value of the youth in overthrowing not only Russian authority, but Western authority too. That's why they utilize the youth in the ways they do today in order to advance their agenda, and they have this, you know, shield against criticism of what they're doing. Lenin was also influenced by someone named Peter Tekavik, uh, Tekev, or I think that's how you pronounce it, Peter Tekev, who felt that peasant communes could achieve socialism without going through capitalism first. Lenin further believed that undying commitment is necessary to the cause, declaring himself always as the majority, even when he was not. This is where the name Bolshevik comes from, Bolsheviki, the majority, or the majorityites, from the Russian word majority, Bolshinstvo, Bolshinstvo. He labeled all of his opponents as Mensheviki, or minorityites. Bolsheviks believed that political democracy was an instrument to fight for socialism, much like Karl Kotsky using a parliamentary system. And according to those like Donald Sassoon, basically what they did was they, they created, they invented a working class. And uh, this is the, the nature of the social communist system. And what Lenin did with his majority-minority labels was also done by Karl Marx, who established his ideology as scientific, branding all opponents as utopians. We hear a lot about majorities and minorities today, used in a very similar but kind of a different way. Class warfare was also inflamed immensely by a Russian named Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who influenced Lenin. He wrote a book called What is to be Done, published in 1863. In Isa Berlin's words, Chernyshevsky widened the gap between us and them, creating this idea of class warfare, it's us versus them, proletariat versus the landlords, etc. He believed that anything short of the abolition of all current systems was itself politics of the burgessy. He said that if you don't, destroy the current system in all of its capacities, then it's just the political system using you to its benefit. Uh, others like Mikhail Bakunin, an anarchist, believed in equality, freedom, and the total abolishing of rights of inheritance in order to achieve a utopia. I mean, these same ideologies and methods are being employed today. Abolish private property, abolish the family, abolish inheritance, destroy paid labor, etc. by increasing labor and then getting rid of labor because of robots and things like that and doing so by any and all means. Consolidate all land and possessions and the collectives to be utilized in order to produce for the planned economy. Instill the idea in the population that capitalism is the reason for any and all suffering, perceived or otherwise, despite the quality of life and general wealth increasing immensely every single decade, as we've documented tonight. And along with capitalism, which built such immense wealth and freedom, it is the wealthy who are to blame, but not even the ultra-wealthy, just your neighbor. In order to achieve utopia... In order to achieve utopian equality, we have to have a system of communism from which all is going to be equal. We'll have the same outcome regardless of skill or intellect. A process involving education that only involves the teaching of doctrine and modern serfdom in the name of equality, environmentalism, and peace, etc. Lenin believed that the exploitation of the masses, their want, and their, their poverty created excess, and therefore only communism was able to end the suffering and make the state absolutely unnecessary that's because Lenin believed there would be nobody as a class to suppress, and that actually works out well when you 
murder people intentionally, directly, and unintentionally, indirectly through starvation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these ideas are thousands of years old. I mean, the, the, the disciples of Jesus were considered to be, you know, uh, one of heart and people who shared things in common. St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, wrote, you know, that nature has poured forth all things for all men to be held in common. But, you know, these systems today and in the last couple hundred years are different. Socialist welfare states are attempting to create outright communist states, um, some socialist welfare states, not necessarily, but socialist welfare states and attempts to create outright communist states have inexorably produced poverty, starvation, oppression, suffering, torture, plummeting of life quality and mass death on levels that are completely unimaginable and generally speaking, unknown to the mass populations of people around the world, especially those in Western societies. Capitalist states, however, focused on free markets and individual liberty have created the freest and most wealthy states of existence in the history of the world. Something more keen to utopia than Burgess domination. And again, throughout all of human history, human rights, individual rights, liberties, freedoms, etc. were totally non-existent. In Mesopotamia, criminals and prisoners were enslaved. In Egypt, most labor was conducted by slaves. Land was worked by serfs. Most ancient cultures took slaves during military conquests. Greece and Rome. China has slavery dating back to the second millennium BC. The mass majority of people were enslaved in medieval Europe and forced to work the land. You know, a serf was someone who was part of the land. They were legally not allowed to leave the land. The Catholic Church actually became the largest landowner in Europe. Medieval monks convincing lords to give up their estates to the church. There's a book called The Triumph of Liberty where Jim Powell describes the mass murder of humans on an unimaginable scale throughout hundreds of years, from Mongol conquest, killing millions, to the Inquisition, Spanish killing the Aztecs, Aztecs killing themselves, Indians being slaughtered, European wars resulting in 20 million deaths from 1740 to 1897, Chinese imperial forces killing potential opponents and a death toll reportedly hitting 40 million. Hitler killed, what, 21 million, generally speaking. Communists in China killed around 60 million directly or through starvation. And the Soviet Union using slave labor and starvation, 40 million people died and an additional 20 million died directly being murdered. That's like over 100 million people in Soviet Russia and communist China in the 20th century. 170 million people in the 20th century were killed, roughly speaking. According to Professor R.J. Rummel, they were shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, or worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hung, bombed, or killed, and any other of the myriad ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless citizens or foreigners, end quote. So, ladies and gentlemen, compare this to the writings of the scholar John Locke, for example. His radical view expressed the idea that a government is morally responsible to serve the people and protect life, liberty, and property. People have a responsibility to be informed and to be educated. He described a system of checks and balances that would limit government power and favor a representative form of government and a strong rule of law. His ideas extended to the concept that when a tyrannical government violates individual rights, people have a legitimate right to rebel. These are concepts enshrined in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, and our subsequent amendments, both of which created the most freedom, the most success, the most health, the most wealth, the most education, the most life, 
and the most liberty in the history of the world. Share this show, spread these ideas, spread these facts. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings, and I thank you so much for tuning in tonight. www.thesecretteachings.info. Please subscribe to the show. Please buy a book. I spend all my days preparing for these shows, reading. I put all the money back into the show as best as I can. We are on Monday through Friday, five nights a week. Leave us a review on the podcast, Radio Players. Again, please subscribe to the show. Please buy a book. Check out our new Tree of Life t-shirts on TeePublic. Links on social media and our website. Email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. Stay safe. Stay informed. Stay healthy. Stay free. Stay intellectual. Continue to think and continue to be grateful that you have it better than any group of people in the history of the world, especially in Western civilization and particularly in the United States. But don't let that be an excuse for others to take it away in the name of you've got too much abundance. It's destroying the planet because it's not.